0: you're joining us today for the first time in this room can I say welcome we are so glad to have you here if you're joining us online my name is Jamie I'm the lead pastor here at Ebenezer and I can't tell you how excited I am to be with you today I can't tell you how excited I am that we're gonna to get to worship today with communion it's worship out of all the things in the Bible the one thing Jesus said to do in remembrance of him was what we're gonna do at the end of this message and that lights my fire I don't know about you When you think about worship experiences, some of my most memorable experiences have been sitting at the Lord's table together with other believers. And so I'm excited about that today. And I'm excited because if you are here today and you are a guest, you've been here one time, two times, ten times, it doesn't matter. We We really want to connect with you. We're not here to try to get you to sell our church. We just want to know what God's doing in your life and how we can partner with you wherever you are. So if you look in the back of the the pew in front of you and see one of those connect cards, take and fill it out. Even if you are a member and you say, you know, I need to let the office know I've got a surgery coming up or I've got this thing going on in my life, would you take and fill the same card out and drop it off at our welcome desk or in our connection center? We just want to connect and minister alongside of you. And so if you take a few moments and do that, that would be awesome. And you need your study guide today because I am going to use today's message Maybe, I don't know if it's going to teach you something new, but I want to show you something that I do when I study the Bible. And so you're going to need that study guide and a pen. So you kind of look around behind you and you're like, hey, I don't have a pen. Maybe shoulder tap somebody see if you can borrow one. Um, That's how I met a girl in college, trying to borrow a pen from somebody. No, I really did. I was standing in line. Back then you used to have to stand in line to register. And I'm standing there and I'm talking to this, this young lady in front of me and I was hitting on her. Um, Laura's not here to verify this story, and so I'm hitting on this girl, and I turned around to the girl behind me, and said, hey, can I borrow your pencil so I can get her phone number? And it was really weird, because then the girl behind me said, you're Jeff's brother. I'm like, yeah. So she knew who I was, and I didn't know who she was. It was a really awkward moment. But anyway, regardless of that, um, take your Bible, turn to Hebrews chapter 8. We are halfway through, pretty much. If you've been following along with our reading schedule, um, We're going to go and fast forward over the next few weeks to kind of wrap this up. To me, uh, Hebrews 8 is a turning point because up to this point, we have focused on the person of Christ and his exaltation. Chapter 7 spent time talking about how Jesus was a better priest and how his lineage was eternal. Just like Melchizedek had no beginning and end, he makes his appearance in Genesis 14. Jesus likewise exceeded exceeded the priesthood of the Levites because he wasn't a Levite. And so if you you study through that, you would see that the author talks about different facets of how Jesus is the better high priest. And when we get to chapter 8, he begins to turn from who to where. He begins to turn from who to where. Where Jesus is. I think this is vitally important for you and me as Christians to ask ourselves the question, Where is Jesus? We started this series talking about how I believe the book of Hebrews is an exposition of Psalm 110. Which specifically says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my, what does it say there, y'all remember? Right hand, a position of authority, and that is where Jesus is right now. Spending 20 plus years working with kids and students. One of the things I wanted to make sure that kids understood, and us adults need to understand today, is where is Jesus? He's in heaven. And he is waiting. And while he waits, he is doing this service, the liturgy of ministry for you and me. But who is it that lives in our heart? Because sometimes we use the words, I've asked Jesus into my heart kind of flippantly. Where is Jesus? Where? Where? He's in heaven, but who's in us? The Holy Spirit. See, we forget that, and we forget that God's given us a power source and a director for our life. It's the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. And so let me just take a few moments to kind of set this up by by telling you a story about museums. How many of you really like museums? Some of you may go and you like to look at artifacts. Maybe maybe you stand there and you, you see something that someone has created, an art piece, a painting. And you're just enamored by it. Some of you go in and you love the history behind the artwork. But you know what's interesting is I found this article entitled this. Most artworks in museums are fake. And here's why. It says it was reported that in a French museum it was discovered that there were 82 of 140 paintings by, a, by an, an artist by the, the last name of Terrace. He was an 18th century painter who are, uh, excuse me, 19th century painter, who began to transition from exact representations of, our, uh, of objects and begin to introduce different colors or strong colors and, and just begin to, to kind of elaborate on the, on the object. 82 of his 140 paintings were fake. In fact, that museum alone spent $200,000 buying these fake pieces of art. You're just like going, well, why would they do that? Well, sometimes people just get deceived. There was an artist that, that I, one artist that I read up on who, who was so good at his artistry, he tricked people and made millions of dollars. He was caught in the 50s, I believe, by a museum in Chicago. Like, he had, he had extorted so much money making fake artwork of what was, like, commonly known. So if you go in a museum... For example, if you go to see the Mona Lisa, it may not be the Mona Lisa you're looking at. Why would you want to put something like a Mona Lisa on a wall? You probably have it in a vault and you got the fake out front. A representation of the real thing. Now I want you to imagine that you're that first century Christian. You were born in Judaism. And each year your family would make those pilgrimages. Especially Passover. And so you would walk... You'd be walking and traveling up this ascent. That's why when you read the Psalms, it talks about the Psalms of ascent. Do y'all know what that means? That was the Psalms that they sang as they were journeying to Jerusalem because you're going up. I can't wait to see it, Fred. I've never seen Israel. I've never been to Israel. And like he said, there's, there's spots open if you are, are interested in going, see Fred today. Because I can tell you, Fred, I'm probably gonna be quoting one of my favorite Psalms. I will lift my eyes into the hills. And where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made the heaven and the earth. I'm going to be probably saying that over and over again, probably with tears in my eyes. Because they would travel up that ascent and they would get to the top and there's the city. And for that first century Jew, they would then look into and they'd see the walls and then maybe got a glimpse of Herod's temple. Not the majesty and the glory of Solomon's temple. Have you ever read how spectacular that thing probably looked? Laid with gold, just a beautiful piece. But in all of that, to realize that what they were looking at was simply a copy. In Hebrews chapter 8, the writer tells us it was a copy of the things of heaven. In its majesty, it was simply a copy. But you know what the problem was? they're looking at this temple, they've brought their perfect lamb, they're they're coming to make sacrifice to a building that is empty of the presence of God. In fact, by this point, we believe because of Ezekiel chapter 10, Ezekiel witnessed the departure of the presence of God from the Holy of Holies in that temple. You see, no Jew could go and verify that the Ark of the Covenant was still even in there. After the deportation in 586, and and, and the, the city was destroyed by, by the Babylonians. Nobody could verify that the Ark of Covenant was in there. Why? Because only the high priest could go in. We don't know what the high priest was going and sprinkling blood on. But that, that, remember, the Ark of the Covenant was supposed to possess, be that place where the presence of God would come and dwell between the cherubim on what's called the mercy seat. And the high priest would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat as a shield between the covenant law That condemned us in the presence of God. And so the blood would permit someone to come into the presence. See, I believe that everybody in this room has the same kind of need. We need a place. We need a people. We need a place where we can go into the presence of God. And we need a people or a person. Well, I believe that person is Jesus Christ. The thing that would identify, that would mark me, is Jesus Christ. And his place is in the very presence of God. Because he is God. It's really weird when you start using words just flippantly. You've got to think about what you're saying. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, sits in the presence of God the Father. But where is God's dwelling now on earth? Is there a building... On the face of this planet that God has called his home, where is his dwelling? Inside of those who have accepted Christ as Savior. We, according to Paul in Corinthians, are the temple of God. And so we need to understand that Jesus is our person and heaven is our place. In fact, I mean, think of it like this. I mean, uh, Reggie Joyner one time talking about kids. Kids need a place and a person. We can make practical application. Everybody, one of you in this room needs another Christian. A relationship with other believers. And you need a place. I think Ebenezer is a pretty cool place. You need a place and a person just like Seinfeld had a Kramer and a diner. Friends had a Joey in a coffee house. Cheers had a Norm in a bar. I'm, I'm, I'm breaking your brain. And Andy Griffith had a Barney and a Mayberry. Who is your person and where is your place? And so, as I said, we're in chapter 8. Chapter 7 talked about how Jesus had exceeded, more than exceeded, the priesthood of the Levites. In fact, if if you'll give me just a few minutes, I want to summarize it. He talks about that there was an encounter between Abraham and Melchizedek, which we read about in Genesis 14. And Melchizedek blesses Abraham... And Abraham paid a tithe to him. And so in the loins of Abraham was Levi. Because Abraham would have Isaac, and Isaac would have Jacob, and Jacob would have Levi, right? That, that's some a little bit of Jewish history there. But Abraham paid a tithe to Melchizedek, this priest of God. Remember, the king of righteousness, the king of peace. peace. And so Levi indirectly pays a tithe to Melchizedek. And what the author basically is saying is this. Well, then that means that whoever Melchizedek is, Levi, was below him. Does that make sense? And so as it says in 7.12, there had to be a, cha- a change in the priesthood determined that there had to be a change in the law. Because the old covenant was based upon the people of God get, coming into covenant with God. God would give something. The people would give something. The people gave their allegiance And they approached God through the practice of the law, but the law did not make them righteous. The one thing that opens up the door for anybody to ever have righteousness is faith in God. And so God said, I would bless you. In fact, any covenant that has ever been made has had to be cut. When you look at Genesis 15, after God says, I'm going to bless you, make you a, a nation, he then tells Abram, go and take these animals and I want you to cut them in half and lay their parts open. And the Bible says that God comes through with a flame between those parts. In 17, in seventeen, he continues that example by saying, I want all of your men to be circumcised. Again, a cutting. There's a covenant that has been cut. And any time a covenant is cut, there's something given from both parties. God wants your allegiance and mine, our faith. And he says, I will bless you. So how is it that Jesus has superseded that law? Because he completed that law. He completed the righteous requirement of the law. And all of the sacrifices that had ever been made, millions and millions of sacrifices made by people for forgiveness of sin, Jesus did once for all. We don't have to make a physical sacrifice anymore. Why? Because Jesus did it. Y'all say it with me. Once for For all say it again once for all and so why are we continuing to live a life where we think and this is the message to the readers that we need to think that we need to continue trying to do good stuff to show ourselves good on any given day your best righteousness is still filthy rags before the Lord when we look at the cross we see the beauty the beauty of the holiness of God and when we compare ourselves to the law we see how despicable we really are But the greatness of the grace and the mercy of God is that He would take somebody like you and me in our worst case and bring us to Himself because of what Jesus did on the cross. That deserves an amen. Because no one stands before Him, no one can stand before Him perfect in and of Himself. So now we get to this point, and He's going to begin to bring kind of a summary to this and begin pointing to this new covenant. That he's made with the people of God today. So would you stand with me as we read six verses at the beginning of chapter 8. So the scripture says this. Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest. And again he's quoting just like in three, Psalm 110. Who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. A minister in the sanctuary and the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. You see where he's going with this? We went from the person to the place. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so it is necessary that this high priest have something to offer. This high priest. Now, if he were on earth... He would not be a priest at all. Why? Because Jesus was of the tribe of Judah. He didn't line up with what the Levitical law said who should be making sacrifice. But he says, since there are those who offer gifts according to the law. He, He did not have that lineage. His lineage superseded the lineage of the Levites. He says, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things? We talked about art pieces. Well, there it is. What you saw in the tabernacle, what you saw with the temple, was a copy of what the heaven looked like. And remember, when we go back and we, when we recall what the writer has said about Jesus, Jesus passed through the heavens, much like the high priest passed through the veil to get to the Holy of Holies, the presence of God. He says, excuse me, got choked. For he says, see, he's saying to Moses that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. But now, here's the verse we need to key in on. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is the mediator. Say mediator. Of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. Let's pray. Father, as we uh, unpack this for the next few minutes. Open our hearts and our minds that we may hear and see the truth that you have to speak to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So you can have a seat. A.T. Robertson says this about this passage, just so you know how this summarizes what's happened up to this point. He says, we have a summary of the five points of superiority of Jesus as high priest. He himself is a priest better than Aaron, as shown in 8.1. He works in a better sanctuary. He offers a better sacrifice. He is a mediator of a better covenant. And his work is based upon better promises. Hence, his ministry is better as a whole. This is a better situation all the way around. You know why? It doesn't depend on you. Let me say that again. Because some of you have come here today and you've carried the weight of the world for seven days. Everything that the world could throw at you has been thrown at you this week. And you feel like it's your role to be the savior of your kids, of your family, of your neighborhood, even maybe even of your church. But can I tell you something? You bring nothing to the table. And that's not bad news. Jesus did it all. He paid it all. And what he's inviting us into... Wherever you stand with the Lord today, he's inviting you to depend on him and his ministry. He is our person. He is our people. He is Christ. And the tension that the author is arguing with the readers is this. Jesus trumped the priest. He's better. He's at the right hand of God, which trumps their place of ministry. Because Jesus is in the place the temple was made of a copy of. They're traveling to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. If they had the chance to travel to Jerusalem, and they're seeing all the things we talked about earlier. The majesty of the city, which was still not even the, the, the original. This was a copy of the copy of the copy. You ever have, you know, you go get keys made. Y'all got your keys with you, right? Well, you know, I had a new house key made. And it's pretty cool how they make keys today because it, it recorded my key in this little machine, so if I ever needed another one, I don't have to take this back. It'll just, I just type in my email address, log in, and it'll make me another key. But I used to make keys. I worked at a hardware store. If you take and try to make a copy of a copy, eventually your key will stop working because it's not exact. It's not true as that passage says. And so for you and me today, we have to realize That the repetition of dead liturgy that didn't bring about the removal of sin does not accomplish anything in our life. They kept wanting to go back to the Levitical system and Jesus, by appearing and becoming a better high priest, replaced that old system because he fulfilled it. Doesn't mean it didn't have a place. Doesn't mean that it was bad. God doesn't make mistakes. What we learn in verses 7 and 8, it was the people who messed it up. God made a covenant with the people of Israel. In fact, he cut a covenant with them. He put half the people on one mountain, half the people on another mountain. And he said, if you keep my covenant on one look, he looked at one mountain and said, I'll bless you. But if you don't keep my covenant, I will curse you. And it didn't take one book. They get through the book of Joshua. They've taken the promised land. And by the time you get to Judges, man, you want to read something that's jacked up, that's worse than daytime television, soap operas, read the book of Judges. Man's wife is murdered, he cuts her up into 12 parts and sends a part to each of the Israel tribes. Man, that's jacked up, that's messed up. That's how messed up, it didn't take a generation or two for them to fall in to apostasy. And He's telling these readers, why do you want to go back to something that is no longer effective? So entertain me for a moment. I want to, I want to show you something that I do. I have an image, hopefully, that we're going to be able to put on the screen. I have printed in your study guide 8-6, the verse. And so I'm going to bring back to your memory some English. Now, when you took English, you should have learned that when you look at the subject of a sentence, you draw one line under it, right? And if you're any English teachers here, know that I'm probably going to break the system. This is my system. But when there is a primary verb or a verb of a sentence, you do two lines. So if you notice, I want you to draw a line under the word he, the pronoun, and two lines under have obtained that is a perfect tense verb in other words it's completely completed he has obtained something the direct object of this sentence which is a more excellent ministry he could have said just ministry but he wanted to highlight the greatness of the service of Christ remember Jesus said I did not come to be served but to serve and give my life a ransom for many right here it is but that's a conjunction that's summarizing those other five verses remember what he said he's a higher better high priest in a better place and moses made the copy of the heavens and that's where jesus is and so what i did was i put the word now now as an adverb i drew a line over to obtain because it tells you now not later not soon to come now jesus has obtained it it's done and we can base our life on it because Jesus is doing that service of ministry for you and me. Stop carrying the load of your Christianity. As Jesus has said, come and put it on me. Take his yoke upon you. Right? Isn't that what he taught? Because he has done the work. Now, go to the next part of this sentence because I believe this is the primary verb. He is. Single line, double line. Linking verb. Linking verb is well what is the he well, he is, and I put another line under the mediator because he equals the mediator a mediator is somebody who stands the gap that negotiates it's a it 's a legal term. Jesus is the mediator now of a better covenant in the old covenant the mediation was rested upon the Levitical priesthood, which was finite, fallible human beings that was mediating the covenant between the people of Israel. And God, but look at this, by as much as. In that kind of adverbial phrase, he is saying that he obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as, this is, the, this is what it's based on. He's the mediator. Folks, he's our mediator. He sits by God the Father and he's mediating for you. and me. And that's why I think it's important for us When we consider the phrase, Jesus is in my heart, he's not in your heart. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you, the mark of this new covenant. Jesus is in heaven. And it's important to remember that for two reasons. Number one, he's praying for you and me. He knows what you're going through. And he's big enough to take care of all of us. But the second thing we need to remember is he's sitting. Because he completely completed his work. He's not getting up and down. He's not making more sacrifices because he made the ultimate sacrifice. Here's the third thing you need to think about. He's sitting because he's waiting. Remember Psalm 110 said, until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus is coming back, ladies and gentlemen. And we don't know when he's coming back. We don't need to play Russian roulette with the fact that we don't know when Jesus is coming back. We need to do business with God now. And we need to be about the business of God so that those around us will come to know who he is. Don't play with death. And that's what it is. And so he goes on. And see, if if you notice, I drew an arrow here because that's an adjective to covenant. It's a better covenant. That word appears almost 15 to 20 times in this book. Better, 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 better. Why? Because what Jesus brought is better than anything. And so then, here's the word covenant. Which is serving as the subject for the last verb, has been enacted. Just bought a house, sat in a lawyer's office, signed my name on some documents, <laughs> went into debt again. This is perfect tense again. This covenant has been enacted on better promises. Don't you want to know what those promises are? I do. How can God's promises get any better? Because the God that makes a promise will always keep his word. That's why I believe that when Jesus comes back, he's going to rule on the earth for a thousand years. Because he made a promise that he would. He promised Abraham, you will walk on the land and it will be yours. Well, when he died, he had to buy the cave they buried him in. Abraham will be raised from the dead and walk on the land that God promised him and i believe jesus is going to come back and sit on the throne of israel as the son of david the eternal king so what are those better promises well take i want to give you three things that i see that comes out of this passage very quickly number one is this jesus is our direct mediator why does that matter listen to me we come directly to jesus I may offend some people here, and I don't mean that by any means. We don't go to any other priests. The reason we're Protestants, is because we don't pray through Mary to get to Jesus. We, the Bible said very clearly, we can come to the throne of grace to receive mercy in our time of need. There is no one else to go through. Jesus is our direct mediator first timothy 2 5 through 6 says this for there is one man and one mediator also between god and man and that man is christ jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony at the proper time folks the price has been paid and that's his ministry to us we can come directly to jesus and that same jesus said to us whatever you ask in my name That I will do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Wouldn't you rather than trying to solve all of the problems of humanity and take all of the sin upon yourself, go to the one who can do it? Point number two, Jesus blesses us through the new covenant. Well, what does that matter? That means we have a new identity. Y'all hear that? We have a new identity. The old is gone. Your past is gone. It's over. When you come to Christ, you may recall some of the dumb things that you did in your past. But I'm going to tell you what, God's not putting them in your path. There may be some residuals from your history. There may be things, mistakes that you made that, that those, the, the results of those things don't go away. But your past, when you come to Christ, has been forgiven completely. Why? Not because you prayed a certain way, not because you attended church so many times, but because he did it all on the cross. The new is better than the old. Now, what I'm going to challenge you to do is later, or last week, you should have read down through chapter 8. But he's going to quote Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. And here's a summary of the four promises of this new covenant. Number one, the first promise that he gives is we have that new future. He says, I'm bringing about a new covenant that's better than the old one. But here's promise number two. The law is inward, not outward. The thing about the law has now come inside of us. Why? Well, Ezekiel 36, 27 kind of elaborates on that because he put his spirit inside of us. That's why it's important that we understand who lives in me. The Holy Spirit of God lives in me when I accept Jesus. Promise number three is we have direct knowledge of God. Why? Because the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. He's revealing the nature and the character of who He is. And promise number four, our sin isn't just covered, it's taken away. It's eradicated. When I come to Jesus, that blood that had been sprinkled on the mercy seat year after year after year never took sin away. His blood took my sin away. It's no longer held to my account. We have a new future. The Spirit lives inside of us. I can have direct knowledge of God, and my sin is eradicated. Folks, that's better promises than anything. Because you know what that gives me? It gives me a new identity. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. To the letter of per- to Pergamum that John wrote, he said, To him who overcomes, I will give him hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written upon it. We have a new identity And lastly, Jesus has made better promises. Why does that matter? Because it doesn't depend on me. If you're a parent in the room, have any of your kids ever called you down because you made a promise and you didn't keep it? I don't know about you, but it tears me up. I, I want my kids to believe my word when I say my word. It's hurtful. But let me tell you, Jesus keeps his words. I've heard, you've heard it said, live Christian life as if it depended on you. I think that's, I don't think that's good theology. You know why? Because it gives my flesh an out. If I say I'm going to live the Christian life as if it depended on me, that's a low bar. Y'all get that? We need to live the Christian life as if it depended on him. And when I look at the cross, I come to the cross and I worship. And I pay homage to the king who loved you and me so much that he would die in our place. Jesus has obtained an excellent ministry. He's a blesser to us because he's mediating. He's dispensing this blessing because because of what he did. And it's based on these promises that he promised. And we're gonna continue to unpack this place. He's gonna, in chapter nine, he's gonna begin to talk about This this mediation. He's going to talk about a covenant and a will. Like you leave a will to somebody and some similarities between the two. And how it took someone dying to bring this covenant about. And how that's going to lead us up to next week when we talk about the practical application of what that new covenant means for you and for me. And as such, we ought to be celebrating the superiority of Jesus we should celebrate the majesty of Jesus Christ. We should celebrate the excellence of Christ. When we come into this room, week after week, and we're sitting here, I don't care what song is picked, we can worship. That last song said, I lift my hands and I abandon my heart. Folks, if you come in here today willing to say, I'm going to give up Every perspective I have, give up all the things of my heart. Let it be wiped clean so I can come and worship God fresh and anew. In fact, when Jesus had the last supper with his disciples, the Bible says when the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I earnestly desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never eat it again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken the cup, he gave thanks to it. Gave thanks, and he said, take and share it among yourself. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now until the kingdom of God comes. The, bre- the, 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 the banquet table of the Lamb of God. And he gave, some, he gave them bread, and he gave thanks. And he broke it, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Then he says this, you ready? The cup which is poured out for you is the cup of my blood for the new covenant. In fact, Matthew would elaborate on that and say, This is the my blood of the covenant which is poured out for the forgiveness of sin. At the end of the day, what is it that we're after? I think we're after peace. Honestly. To be at peace with God. To be at peace with others. To rest. In Christ... It's the only way you will ever find that perfect rest. And so, as uh, today, as Crosby, our student pastor, is coming, he's going to lead us in communion today. Our deacons are going to start making their way up to serve you. I want to challenge you a couple of things. Number one, it says, Don't take it amiss. So, right now, in just a few minutes, I want to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes. And I want you to pray and ask the Lord, not just to forgive your sin, but to cleanse you. So that as you take this communion today, You're taking it in response to the goodness of God and what God has done. You're taking this in a way that it's its not salvific. It does not save you. We do it in remembrance of him that his body was broken and his blood was spilled. So right now, bow your heads. And to yourself, I want you to say a little prayer. And ask the Lord to wash you, cleanse you, purify you. As you get ready to take this communion in such a way that all walls are removed and we are knit together as one.